Well, God is uh, so kind, and uh, he loves us, and one of the ways that he shows his love to us is through giving us his word and through giving us his spirit, and so I am uh, so grateful that we can spend some time together in the Gospel of Luke. If you'll uh, take your Bible and open with me to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 2, uh, verses 22 through 38, we're asking that the Spirit of God would use the Word of God to show us the glory of the Son of God and transform us and make us like Him. Uh, but if you've been here for, for a, a number of weeks, uh, if you've been here for our study of Luke, you know we're, we're working, uh, we're really working actually, to understand this gospel as Luke meant it. And uh, that takes a little bit of work for all of us because uh, Luke was written so many years ago for one thing, uh, but it is worth it. Uh, we're uh, trying to understand what Luke meant because we know when we understand what he meant back then that we can understand what it means now. So uh, we're in the introduction to the Gospel of Luke again, and Luke is doing all kinds of things in this introduction, chapters 1 and 2. But one of the things that he is doing for certain is trying to motivate us to uh, read his Gospel. And one of the ways that he is motivating us is by showing us that God is promising a big salvation through Jesus, big. It is like you want to know the answer to every problem in the world, every single last one. It's what God is doing through Jesus. That is chapter one. And that is our message as Christians. You understand that, right? You name a problem, a kind of problem. Uh, maybe you say environmental problems. The the gospel promises an uh, ultimate solution to the environmental problems of the world. Uh, political problems, social problems, relational problems, spiritual problems. You name a problem, for us as Christians, it is like, let's talk about what God did and what God is doing and what God is going to do through Jesus. That is our message as a church. It's big. Whatever people want to say about Christianity, the one thing they can't say is that it's not promising much. It is promising much. It is promising something huge. We are talking total and complete salvation, which is awesome. But it doesn't always feel as awesome as it should because we have doubts. We don't like to admit it at church, of course, but most of us at some level have some doubts. I heard someone talking uh, recently about how fragile many people's faith seems right now. And he was saying, um, it's like we believe, but we're constantly looking over our shoulders. And that's not always true, of course, but you can understand why he would say that because imagine what our lives would be like if we didn't have doubts. If you were sure that because of what Jesus did on the cross, every single political problem, every single environmental problem, every single social problem, every single spiritual problem was gonna be worked out. Nobody could stop you, right? Nobody. But we have doubts. And so sometimes it's like we only live half in 
when it comes to Christianity. We don't bank everything on Jesus. We just bank what we think makes sense. And sometimes we're just, you know, miserable because we're not sure. We don't like our doubts. We maybe hide our doubts. But listen, the Bible understands that you have doubts. It's not like this is a surprise. You come to church and you are like, I don't want anyone to know that I have doubts. The Bible knows you have doubts. Books of the Bible were written to help you with doubts. Luke is one of the books in the Bible written to help you with doubts. You remember that he begins, I'm writing that you might be certain. And he's writing someone named Theophilus. And uh, Theophilus, that name literally means God-fear. But even though he's a, a God-fear, Luke wants to help him be certain. And that's probably because... He was struggling to be certain, which means what? What is the opposite of certain? Uncertain. He was uncertain. Luke is a book of the Bible written to help someone struggling with doubt, which is helpful. There's a book of the Bible for us with doubts. The problem, though, one of the challenges that we, we face, even for me preaching Luke, is that our doubts are not always the same as the doubts of people closer to the actual events. So yes, the Bible knows that you have, have doubts, and books of the Bible were written to help you with your doubts, like Luke. But obviously, the people closer to the events would have different doubts, because they were there, or they were at least closer to being there. Like, was there a Jesus? They knew there was a Jesus. That's not something Luke had to prove. But there were things he had to prove because they had doubts, and they weren't lesser doubts. They were just different doubts, but potentially big doubts. Like what? I think Luke helps us, coming back to the opening chapter of Luke, I think Luke helps us get a, a sense of what some of their struggles might have been. And you know, he doesn't hold back, he doesn't hide, because the first thing that he does is connect Jesus to the Old Testament, you remember? And that's a big part of the issue, actually, where the doubts would have been coming from. But Luke is saying off the bat that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament story. And so to understand Jesus, you have to understand that. He's not someone completely new. And yet, obviously, the Old Testament is a big book, and many of us aren't that familiar with it. So what does he mean, Luke, exactly? He goes on and gives you some hints about the connection. First, he gets you thinking about Isaac, you know, the story of Isaac. And then he shows you Jesus is better. Then he gets you thinking about David and shows you Jesus is better. And so he takes you back to the Abrahamic covenant first and says Jesus fulfills it. He's going to be the one who reverses the curse. And then he takes you back to the promise that God made to Davis, David and said Jesus is going to be the one who fulfills them. He's going to be the king who rules over all. And he starts talking specifically about what that means for us and what that means for the world in which we live. And he makes it clear that it is 100% world-changing. Beginning with Mary, you remember, he shows us that Jesus is supposed to come and rescue Israel, and that is going to result in a complete reversal politically, socially, and economically for the nation of Israel. And then he introduces Zechariah, who expands that, and he talks about Israel being saved from their enemies and being transformed spiritually so that they become a blessing to the entire world, basically. 
Luke is saying that all the promises of the Old Testament are going to be fulfilled in Jesus. That's Luke chapter 1, and we tried to stress that over and over because I know that's not how we normally think of Jesus, a lot of us at least, as being so highly connected to what God's doing in and through Israel like that. But that's clearly how they thought of Jesus and how they explained the salvation they were expecting God to provide through him, Mary, Zechariah, other godly Jews. I mean, it's, it's not really hard to interpret Luke 1, verse 54, if you, if you look at it. Mary sings, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And even Luke chapter 1, verse 68 as well, it's not too confusing. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And it's important you see that here at the start, those expectations who Luke is claiming Jesus is and what he's claiming Jesus is coming to do because it helps you understand the kind of doubts he's going to be addressing throughout this gospel. Because look, if you make a list of what Mary says here and what Zechariah says here, and then you look at what actually happened to Jerusalem, uh, to Jesus and to Jerusalem, both, that's where you start seeing the questions. So take Jerusalem first. You know the history of Jerusalem a little, 70 AD, absolutely destroyed by the Romans. And you can read a description of it from a historian named Josephus. Uh, Google it. Like a million Jews died and another 100,000 were made slaves. It's like 70 AD couldn't seem the more opposite of what we just read. You, you try to think of something more opposite you can't think of it. Luke 1, that we should be saved from the hand of our enemies, Zechariah said. 70 AD, a million Jews die at the hands of the Romans, according to Josephus. Expectations for Israel and Jerusalem, that future reality, very different. Very different. And then Jesus as well, because here's Jesus, think about it. Here Jesus is supposed to be the fulfillment of the Old Testament, and yet what happens? What happens is that he is crucified by the ones who were supposed to know the Old Testament best. In fact, Luke is gonna show us at the end of his gospel that Pilate and the Romans tried to get out of it. It is students of the Old Testament who wanted Jesus crucified. So we have doubts, yeah, when we hear about this huge salvation now. But you know what? Back then when Luke's writing, these people to whom he's writing, you can see why they would have had some big questions too. Because first of all, it kind of looks like Jesus was saying he was going to do this and it didn't happen. That's first. And then second, if Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, why in the world was he rejected by the Jewish leadership who would have been experts in the Old Testament? That's second. Those are two key questions, doubts. And you know, this is the introduction to Luke that we're in, of course. So he doesn't totally answer all those questions yet. He's writing a whole gospel for this. But what he does is get you ready for the questions and he gives you some themes, some basic ideas, some concepts that are gonna help you understand his answer. Again, from 
a couple of weeks ago. If you think of the gospel of Luke like music or, or a symphony, and I'm not very musical, um, but stick with me, in the opening of a symphony, is that the overture? I, I, I'm not sure, but I think so. Luke at least plays some themes. He plays some notes in the introduction, the opening or the overture, that he's going to play louder throughout the rest of the gospel. He's going to come back to those notes and sort of pound on them. So, for example, in regards to the first question or doubt about what happened to Jerusalem, this isn't a, a total answer, but in the birth of Christ, you look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 21, and you get some ideas. Because first, Luke shows you that God is able to use an evil Roman emperor to fulfill his plans, even when the evil Roman emperor doesn't know it. And then next, he shows you that the suffering and shame that Jesus experienced as a result of that emperor's actions didn't prove that he wasn't the Messiah, but actually ended up being a proof or a sign that he was the Messiah. The swaddling cloths and being laid in a manger was a sign, Luke says. And then, of course, you've got these ordinary, common men, shepherds being given revelation and then seeing confirmation of that revelation with their own eyes and then going out and proclaiming it, which is a big part of what's going to happen in Acts, right? That's how we're here right now. Luke's laying it out from the beginning, the plan. But you've got to think about it. There are answers. But what God's doing through Jesus, you've got to think about it. And that's actually another cool little hint that Luke gives us back in verse 9 of chapter 2 about Mary. He says, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And so she's seeing these events and she's thinking about them, which is an example, but also actually an illusion. So that phrase, Mary pondered these things in her heart, comes from the Old Testament. You go back to the Old Testament and you know who else did that in the Old Testament? You have to go back to Genesis where Joseph has a dream about becoming the ruler of Egypt and saving his family. And his brothers thought he was crazy and his father got a little angry. But you know what Moses says, Genesis 37, 11? Moses says, and his brothers were jealous, but his father kept the saying in mind. And that is a really similar language in the Greek version of the Old Testament as Luke uses here with Mary. So what's going on with Jesus, think about it, because God's pattern Beginning back in the Old Testament, you've got a son who is going to suffer and then be vindicated and rescue his people from slavery. And so think about it. That's maybe like a hint from Luke as we look at Mary pondering, wondering, is this what's going to happen with Jesus? What happened to Joseph? And you know, it's not just there. There's at least one other place where someone does something similar in the Old Testament as well. Daniel chapter 7. So Daniel chapter 7 is this amazing vision of the future where someone like a son of man is given authority and a kingdom after defeating all these beasts. It's an important chapter in the Old Testament. It's like a, a future history of the world and something that Jesus is going to claim about himself later that he fulfills. And after he hears that, you know what Daniel does? The text says it greatly alarmed him and his color changed and then I kept the matter in my heart. And you hear that in my heart because it's just so similar to what Luke says here. I don't know, but I think it's a hint. What do we do with these doubts when we see Jerusalem falling? We do the same thing Jacob, Daniel, and Mary did. We keep our eye on what God's revealed because you know what? It's going to happen. Even if for a while it doesn't look like it. 
But again, this is just an introduction. It's not the final answer. It's just like the beginning of an answer. It's a glimpse. It's, it's, a, it's hints. I mean, we're in chapter two. So this is just some themes Luke's going to come back to as he helps us think about the fall of Jerusalem, this first question. But, but what about the second question, the second doubt? The rejection of Jesus by the Jewish leaders, because that's another real problem. And Luke knows he's going to answer that. And verses 22 to 38 helps us get some ideas we're going to need to understand Luke's answer to that question. But if you first think about some other possible answers to the Jewish leadership rejecting Jesus, one of the most obvious answers would be that Jesus must have been some kind of radical. In other words, one of the most obvious answers would be basically the objection that the Jewish leaders themselves gave in terms of, of Jesus. Because you remember, what did they say? He ate with sinners, so he must not care about sin. He was a blasphemer. He was taking God's name in vain. He's empowered by Satan and not by God. And that, that's going to be the turning point in Luke chapter 11, actually, when they say that. And look, I know we're thousands of years removed now and so we're jesus fans and we're like when we read that how how dare you say all that you're you're bad you're you're bad and we don't even feel the force of their objections but if we put ourselves back in the day and look at the religious leadership we can see how those would have been some pretty powerful questions about jesus even if you think of people you respect right now when people you respect have questions about someone else what do you do you have questions about those people, of course. And there's a, a sense in which that's part of what religious leadership is there for, to help protect you from bad people when you can't spot them. And again, I know, of course, we have this idea of the, of the religious leadership in Jesus' day, especially of the Pharisees. And, and some of the ideas that we have are right because Jesus pulls back the curtain and shows us they're a mess. But on the surface, here's the point, on the outside, you have to understand they looked amazing. <laughs> These are people who looked amazing. The, 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 the very uh, beginning of the Pharisees, the whole goal was to protect Israel from compromise. And so what do we, we do with that? With the fact that these very serious students of the Bible who look amazing reject Jesus, thoroughly reject Jesus. To help us understand his answer, Luke draws our attention to several people. And first of all, Jesus' parents, verses 22 through 24. And you could really throw in verse 21, but we'll just look at verses 22 to 24 and see Jesus' parents' obedience to God's law. And when the time came, Luke writes, for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord as it's written in the law of the Lord every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what's said in the law of the Lord a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons and obviously there's a lot in there that you could get lost in uh, the first time reading it like the term purification the the law of the firstborn Jesus being presented to God and this uh, sacrifice of turtle doves or, or pigeons What's that all about? And our eyes kind of glaze over some of us, actually. I can even see it now. And, and we miss what's going on. So let me try to make it real quick and then get to the main point. But purification, what is that? You remember the Old Testament has all this talk about clean and unclean. 
If you read Leviticus, you know, and it's a, a, a little unfamiliar to us. We don't talk much like that anymore, not the way the Old Testament does, because in the Old Testament, being unclean was uh, more than being dirty. Instead, it was being in a state or condition uh, where you weren't able to have normal access to God. And so something happened to you that made it inappropriate for you to come to God or to be close with others uh, without getting that worked out first. So it's not the same exactly, but it's kind of like if you've just been at the beach swimming. Imagine, that's not sin, but it does mean you're not in a state or condition at that moment in your swimsuit when you're going to be able to go to a wedding, right? I guess maybe in California, but most places. You don't show up at a wedding in a, a swimsuit, not because wearing a swimsuit is wrong, but instead because it's just not appropriate for a wedding. And so in the Old Testament, there were certain things that could happen to you that made you unclean. It made it inappropriate for you to come into the special presence of God, the, the temple, because that was like heaven on earth. And so everything in the temple was supposed to be like heaven on earth. And so you had to get this taken care of before you could come into God's presence. And the way you got it taken care of was by being purified, which is part of what Mary and Joseph went up to Jerusalem to do. You had a baby, you were unclean. And so 40 days after Jesus was born, and the law was real specific about that, you can read Leviticus 12, but 40 days after Jesus was born, they went to the temple to offer a sacrifice so they could be purified, specifically Mary. And then Luke adds to present Jesus to the Lord. And this particular command goes past Leviticus, all the way back to Exodus, actually. And so the Jews viewed each firstborn child as belonging in a unique way to God. And they believed that you needed to pay a price to redeem him from that. And it was a five shekels to the priest, to be exact. And that idea wasn't one they just made up. It came from somewhere. After God rescued Israel from Egypt by sparing the firstborn son, Exodus 13, we read that God said, to Moses that he was to consecrate or set apart to God all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and beast, was to belong to God, which is basically the verse that Luke quotes. And with the beasts, they were able to redeem them or set them free by offering a lamb in its place, where with children, God provided a way as well. And that was, if you go to Numbers, through setting the Levites, this whole tribe, apart for the service of God, basically in the place of firstborn sons. Uh, but at that point, the numbers didn't match up in terms of how many Levites there were and how many firstborn sons there were. And so God allowed them to redeem their additional sons through an offering of five shekels to the priest. And that became kind of a tradition in Israel. And so Mary and Joseph are coming to the temple to present Jesus to the Lord as holy, set apart, and also to purify themselves, Luke tells us in verse 24, by offering a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons, which was normally something that poor people would offer because obviously lambs were a little bit expensive. And so if you didn't have enough money for a lamb, you could bring up these birds instead, which is a, a lot of detail, I know. And there's even uh, more I left out, believe it or not. But the thing is, Luke is less concerned with whether you're able to explain all those Old Testament rituals exactly as he is that you get his main point that he's making about Jesus, which is that even, which is something even without all that Old Testament background that you can see he works at making stand out by repeating it three times. He says, according to the law of Moses, 
as it's written in the law of the Lord, according to what is said in the law of the Lord. And you know what? If you fast forward down to verse 27, Luke can't help himself. In the second half of the verse, he says, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. And then in verse 39, which is either a conclusion to this story or an introduction to the next, maybe a little bit of both, he says, and when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord. So I guess that's five times in all, which makes it kind of hard to miss. As we look back at the beginning of Jesus's life, it's obvious Jesus's parents did exactly what the law of God told them to do, which becomes a theme in the gospel of Luke, not just about Jesus's parents, but about Jesus himself and about everything that's connected to what's going on with Jesus. Luke gives all kinds of examples of Jesus's attitude towards the law and the way that he obeyed the law. So starting from Luke chapter one, Zechariah and Elizabeth walked blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. Then during Jesus's temptation, he responds to Satan by doing what? Repeating Old Testament commands and stressing the importance of obeying them exactly. And then in his confrontation with the Pharisees, they question him, is it lawful? That was their big objection. And he responds by showing it's totally lawful and how they were misunderstanding God's law. You might remember early on in the gospel, the lawyer asks him, what should he do to inherit eternal life? And how does Jesus respond? He says, what is written in the law? And then he affirms it. He says, do this and you will live. Then later on, towards the end of the gospel, Jesus is asked almost the same exact question again. And this time he responds, you know the commandments. It's hard to think of a way that Jesus could express the importance of the law more strongly than he, the way he does in Luke 16. He says, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. And it goes all the way to Jesus's death, actually. If you look at Jesus's burial, what you find is something very similar to this story about Jesus's birth. There's a, a righteous man named Simeon, or like Simeon, not named Simeon, named Joseph. And there's women as well. It's very parallel. And when Luke describes how the women responded to, Luke, uh, to Jesus's death, he stresses on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. And so this idea that Jesus was a radical, no. Or, or that the religious leadership rejected him so they could protect Israel or something, no. That is not at all what's going on. You look at Jesus's parents from the beginning, you look at Jesus's attitude towards the law, it's like Luke is making a case for Jesus and specifically he's proving that whatever the reason for Jesus's crucifixion, and, and the religious leader's rejection of him, whatever the reason, that reason was not because Jesus was some kind of radical who didn't take God's law seriously. In other words, the religious leader's rejection of Jesus didn't really say anything about Jesus. So what did it say? That's next. What did it say? And it's gonna take us a little while to get there, but to help us get there, Luke brings in another person, someone named Simeon. First, Jesus's parents, he showed us they obeyed the law, verses 22 through 24. Second, Simeon, Luke brings in a, a spokesman for Jesus named Simeon, Simeon, verses 25 through 35. And Simeon represents the best of the religious Jews, basically. And so as we're wondering, why did the religious leadership reject Jesus if he really was the fulfillment of the Old Testament? It's like Luke brings in a representative, you might say, who didn't reject Jesus. 
to help us understand what's really going on. And he does that, Luke is an artist, he does that at the beginning of his gospel, and he does that at the end of his gospel, actually. Simeon here, and who at the end? Who is the representative of the religious Jews who doesn't reject Jesus at the end? So at his birth, here it's Simeon. At the end, it's who? It's Joseph of Arimathea. But you can see verses 25 through 27 here that Luke goes to a lot of work to show us that we should listen to him. He writes, and there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. So in Jerusalem, the temple's in Jerusalem, so it's kind of obvious. But he mentions Jerusalem because you remember Judah and Galilee, those were two provinces in Israel. And Galilee was a place where a lot of Gentiles lived. And it's also where Jesus grew up. He was from Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth. So Galilee wasn't really a place where most of your religious leaders that you really respected would come from. That was Judah. And even more specifically, this main city in Judah, Jerusalem. So if you wanted a good resume, you would say you were from Jerusalem. This is not just another man from Nazareth here, uh, someone who spent too much time with the Gentiles or something speaking. Luke says, and there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. And you know that name from the Old Testament. It was one of uh, Leah's children. It was the name of one of Leah's children that has to do with hearing or heard. And she named him that. Why? She said, because his name means the Lord has heard our prayers. So there was a man in Jerusalem, Luke says, uh, whose name was the Lord has heard our prayers. That's a good start. And it gets better. Luke goes on. This man was righteous and devout. And coming out of the Old Testament, it's hard to think of a much better introduction for someone. Righteous, obedient to God's law, devout, careful about obedience to God's law. It reminds you of the way that Luke introduced Zechariah. And it's going to be very similar, almost the same language to the way he introduces Joseph of Arimathea at the end. And it's similar, of course, to the way God introduces Noah in the Old Testament. Verse 25, Luke continues. He was looking for the consolation of Israel. And that's a phrase from the, the prophets. And it was neat. We sang that in one of our songs today. That was good work. That's a phrase, though, from one of the prophets. So he's a, a student of the scripture, obviously. He's obedient to the law, Luke told us. And he's longing for the Old Testament prophecies to be fulfilled, specifically for the consolation of Israel. And consolation means what? It means uh, comfort. And where does that phrase come from? If you think about the, Israel, the Old Testament prophets, where would that phrase comfort? What's the most famous place that it comes from? It comes from Isaiah chapter 40. <laughs> Almost everything Simeon says comes from Isaiah. This phrase from Isaiah 40, if you know Isaiah, I, Isaiah had prophesied that Israel was going to go into exile. That's how Isaiah 39 ends, which was very sad news. But Isaiah 40 opens by saying that's not going to be the end of it for them. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. In other words, even though Isaiah knew that Israel was going to suffer, he also prophesied about something that was going to come after the suffering, this great day when God would rescue his people and bring them peace and comfort and triumph over their enemies. And you, you know how Isaiah goes on to say that he's going to do this. He's going to do this through a Messiah that he was going to send. And what happened was that Messiah, that rescuer, became so closely associated 
with the comfort God would bring his people that one of the titles that rabbis would give the Messiah was the Messiah comforter. They would say they were waiting for the comfort of Israel, and they knew that that comfort would come through the comforter God would send, the consolation of Israel, which Luke says is what Simeon was looking for. He was looking for the coming of the king who would bring the promised kingdom, fulfill the promise of an eternal kingdom that had been made to David, and bring the blessings that had been promised to Abraham. He was looking forward to this hope. And what's important to understand is that he was looking forward to this hope, not just for himself personally, but he was looking for national deliverance for salvation for his people, Israel. In other words, this was a very good Jew. You, you can trust him. He's from Jerusalem. He's obedient to God's law. He's longing for the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies about Israel like every good Jew was. And that, that's a lot already. But if you look down, Luke takes it to the next level. Because you see how he starts stressing his relationship with the Holy Spirit. End of verse 25. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And one thing you notice if you read Luke 1 and 2 carefully, especially coming out of the Old Testament, is that there's a lot of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so the Holy Spirit's in the Old Testament for sure, but you don't read about him an, an awful lot. And when you do, he's associated with prophecy, but it, it's not a lot. And yet, we're only two chapters into Luke, and this is already the sixth person connected to Jesus who's experiencing some special work of the Holy Spirit. That's telling you something about what God's doing through Jesus. So here Luke says, the Spirit of God has come down from heaven and in some way rests upon Simeon. And he continues, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh's Christ. Not a pretend Messiah, Yahweh's Messiah. For some reason, God chose this man, and the Holy Spirit revealed to him that he was going to see the one God was going to send to fulfill the Old Testament promises before he died, which makes Simeon a very important person in, in, in the Bible. First of all, he's holy. Second of all, the Holy Spirit is upon him. And third of all, he's received special revelation about the Messiah and you know what? As a result, he's become kind of a sign himself. As long as he's alive, you know the Messiah hasn't come. Because he's only allowed to leave once he's identified who God's Messiah is. And Luke says, verse 27, he came in the spirit into the temple. And so it's not even that he just comes into the temple. It keeps getting better. He says he came in the spirit into the temple, which is a funny way of putting it. I mean, how do you come in the spirit into the temple? What's the word in mean here? I looked up the way in is used here. It says of those in, with, on whom, in whose person or character anything is done, generally of any power, influence, or efficiency. So the spirit is on Simeon. And the Spirit told Simeon that he would see the Lord's Christ. And one day, somehow, the Spirit of God mysteriously compels Simeon to come to that temple at that particular moment. The moment that Joseph and Mary were coming into the temple. And the temple's pretty big, and there are 24 hours in a day, so this is providential. And Luke says, end of verse 27, when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God. And so you see how, if I'm wondering, is Jesus some sort of radical, what this does? 
Because here, Jesus' parents are in the very act of obeying God's law. And this man, who is like a picture of everything religious leadership should be, and who is also at this point some kind of prophet, and is himself set apart by God to identify the Messiah, he sees, this man sees Jesus as a baby, and before he does anything else, he comes up, grabs this baby out of his parents' arms, and worships. That's a pretty good answer, <laughs> just as a start. If the religious leadership was in tune with the Spirit of God, this is how they would have responded to Jesus. That's the point. Because obviously the problem's not with Jesus. Here he is, a baby in a diaper, and yet this old man named Simeon sees this baby in a crowd, and he knows immediately what's going on. What's going on? It's, it's kind of obvious, but, but he tells us, in case all of that was somehow too subtle, Luke introduces us to this man named Simeon, and God in verses 29 through 32 enables this man to prophesy and make it crystal clear what's going on. And Luke tells us what he said. First of all, he identifies exactly who Jesus is. Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. In other words, I can die now. Uh, the way he phrases it, it's almost like an employee who has to stay at a job until his boss says he can go home. Simeon says, ah, I can finally go home. Why? Because you kept your promise, God. This is the Lord's Christ. And you notice he says specifically, you're letting your servant depart in peace. And peace is an important word because back up in verse 14, what did the angels say? They said, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he's well pleased. So God is well pleased with Simeon. That says something about Simeon, but it also says something about Jesus because even though Jesus is only a baby here, he's only 40 days old, and yet he's already starting to fulfill the prophecies the angels were making about him. He's bringing peace to someone that God's well pleased with. Why? Simeon says, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Who is Jesus? He's the Lord's Christ. And what did Jesus come to do? You know, really, after chapter 1, there shouldn't be any question. His name means Yahweh saves. And both Mary and Zechariah, they explain what salvation means. But it's like, just in case, in case we didn't get that, now Simeon says, let me connect the dots. This baby is God's salvation. <laughs> and that's Simeon here at the beginning of Luke. And what's kind of interesting is if you go all the way to the end of Luke's second volume, Acts. So that's like a two-volume set, the sequel, Acts. If you go all the, this is the beginning. My eyes have seen your salvation. If you go all the way to the end of, end of Acts, Acts 28, verse 28, you know the last thing Paul says about Jesus? It's the same word. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, they will listen. So this is what Luke wants us to get, beginning and end. Jesus is the one who fulfills everything the Old Testament says about salvation. Well, that's kind of getting ahead of ourselves, I guess, because we're wondering at the beginning, if that's true, then why did he die? And here Luke's introducing us to religious Jew, a religious Jew we can trust, and this religious Jew sees this baby and knows exactly who he is right away. He is the Lord's Christ who has come to provide salvation. 
And what does that mean exactly, salvation? Simeon explains, verses 31 and 32. And each thing that he says here is from the book of Isaiah, like I was saying earlier. But not from just like the whole book of Isaiah in general, actually. He is quoting very specifically from Isaiah 40 to 55. So if you're going to outline Isaiah, you could, you could divide it into three sections. Isaiah 1 to 39, Isaiah 40 to 55, Isaiah 56 to 66. And, and, and so the Bible is it's just amazing. And, and one thing that makes it amazing is that there are all these hyperlinks. And so you press on one and it takes you to another and another and another. And you feel like you kind of have to know the whole Bible. So Isaiah 40 to 55 is this section in Isaiah that is explaining the great salvation that God is going to bring through his servant. And Isaiah 40 to 55 describes it as being like this second exodus, which is going to be why the word redemption is so important throughout the book of uh, Luke. But it, it describes it as like this second exodus. And it's got these famous songs in it, Isaiah 40 to 55, that we call the servant songs. And so it's, it's like, again, if we're wondering about the religious leaders rejecting Jesus when he's supposed to be the fulfillment of the Old Testament, Luke is bringing in Simeon, and he's pointing us to the very section of the Old Testament that explains what and how God is doing through Jesus as Messiah. Specifically, he says this is a salvation, one that you've prepared in the presence of all the people. So God prepared this salvation. It's designed it's not an accident what happens with Jesus. And he prepared it in the presence of all the peoples, which emphasizes, again, the world-changing scope of what God's doing through Jesus. It has ramifications for Israel, of course, but it's also bigger than Israel, just like Mary's song and Zacharias uh, put together. It's doing something is Israel for the purpose of the world, which is kind of like the book of Exodus, actually, isn't it? The prophet Simeon is quoting Isaiah who pictures salvation through the servant as a kind of second exodus. And what was the purpose of the first exodus? You know the story. God was rescuing Israel from Egypt, but for the purpose of putting his glory on display to the entire world. That's what he's doing through Jesus, but even bigger. This is a God-designed salvation, which is intended to put his glory on display to the entire world. That's first. Second, he says it's a light. It's been prepared in the presence of all the peoples, and it's a light which is a different way to describe salvation. Uh, but it comes from Isaiah as well. And it's a picture of what we need. Even Zacharias said that back in chapter 1, verse 79. The sunrise is visiting us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness. We're in darkness. And I think living in the world, we can understand that. It's so dark. And so God's going about rescuing us through Jesus by providing light so that we can see. Which Simeon says is going to result in Gentiles, non-Jews, receiving revelation from God, knowledge about salvation, which was the privilege the Jews had in the Old Testament, right? Revelation. And through Jesus, Gentiles are going to receive light for revelation, and that is going to result in glory for the nation of Israel. Because at the end of the day, the whole world is going to see that God's plan for solving all the problems of the universe flowed through Israel, which is awesome because there are a lot of nations out there and there are a lot of people trying to provide solutions for the problems of the world. And, you know, even in the Olympics, nations are vying for glory. And we want to see which nation got the most gold medals. And that's just sports. This is about the solution to all the problems in the universe. Where is it going to come from? 
Which nation? Simeon is saying one day the whole world is going to see that God provided that solution through the nation Israel. So you can see why Joseph and Mary were amazed. Imagine going to the mall and someone picking up your baby and saying he's the savior of the world. Uh, Luke writes, verse 33, and his father and mother marveled at what was said about him, which almost sounds understated, marveled. But this is like, what just happened? And Simeon's not even done yet. And this next part is so important in terms of those doubts we were talking about. Because how is Luke helping us? First, look at Jesus' parents. The problem's not with Jesus. And Luke's going to be like, look at his life. He was all about the law of God. And now listen to Simeon. Because the problem is definitely not that God was unclear. Simeon could see that Jesus was the Messiah even when he was a baby. And the passages are there in the Old Testament. You read Isaiah 40 to 55, and God's told us how he was saving through Jesus. And Jesus himself is a light, which is something that makes things clearer, not more confusing. So what is the issue then? If the religious leadership's rejection of Jesus didn't say anything about Jesus, what did it say? And this is where Simeon comes in and he really helps us. Verse 34. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, parentheses here, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Now end of parentheses, back to the main subject, so that thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. And there are a few things there, but the first is that not everyone is going to respond to Jesus the same way, and that's part of God's plan. He is appointed. Who appointed him? God appointed him. For the fall and rising of many in Israel. And rising is positive, but falling is negative. And it's even interesting, the order there as well. But this is probably drawing on prophecies that talk about Jesus being the stone that the builders rejected. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So Jesus is the cornerstone. He's like the most important stone in this building that God's building. And yet people are going to reject that stone. It's like they're going to trip over that stone. And so Simeon's saying from the beginning that part of God's plan for Jesus becoming Savior of the world involves many of his own people rejecting him. Which is big because it's the first hint in chapters 1 and 2 that things might not go the way people were expecting. And, you know, he gives us a little insight into how bad it's going to get as well because he tells Mary, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. And a sword is a weapon. It's like your own soul is going to be cut in two, Mary, as you look at what happens to Jesus. But again, the point is that doesn't say anything about Jesus because that's part of God's plan. Simeon continues, he will become a sign that is opposed. And in the Old Testament, you remember how God used the life of a prophet like a sign. And so God communicated through the prophet's words and also through the prophet's life. That's what he was doing with Jesus as well. Jesus' own life will be like a sign. And we know even his birth was a sign, right? That's how Isaiah describes the virgin birth in Isaiah 7. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And if you look back at verse 12 of Luke chapter 2, we saw how where he was born was a sign as well. The angel told the shepherds, this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in the manger. God transformed Jesus' suffering and shame into a sign that he was the Messiah. And of course, that's kind of how his whole life went. And Simeon's point here is that that sign would be opposed. 
Jesus was God communicating with man, and yet man would reject him. And one of the reasons they rejected him was because the sign seemed too ordinary. And you know why God did it this way, and this is key, part of the reasons found at the end of verse 35. Simeon says, he did it this way so that thoughts from many hearts would be revealed. In other words, we're looking at the religious leadership and we're asking, why did they reject Jesus? Because they seem so amazing. They're so serious about the Old Testament. They're serious about the law. And God's like, look again, because while the rejection of Jesus by the religious leadership didn't say anything about Jesus, you know what it did reveal? It revealed them. It exposed them for what they were. And that's the point, because really, here they are. They're the best of the best. The religious leadership of Israel was the best of the best in the whole world. They knew the law the best, and they were trying to keep the law the most carefully. And yet they're so fundamentally broken that God becomes man to fulfill his promise to Israel, and they reject him. Which, of course, is why we need the cross, right? That's why we need the cross. We kind of think people are neutral, and if they just had enough evidence, then they would respond positively to what God's doing. But no way, no way, absolutely no way. Because here are people who spend their entire lives studying the Bible, and God tells them exactly what to look for. And Jesus is going to come and do exactly what God said he would do, and they're going to reject him. And that's not because there's any problem with Jesus. That's because there's some problem with us. which is kind of a new insight in the Gospel of Luke so far. So far. This is a big moment because chapters 1 and 2 have been mostly about Jesus defeating Israel's enemies. But now we're seeing some kind of suffering and rejection built into the plan from the beginning, which starts to answer some of the questions we might have about Jerusalem and the temple and Israel. But now maybe after listening to Simeon, we're asking, well, does that suffering and rejection mean that Mary and Zechariah were completely wrong? Like Jesus is the Savior, but that idea they had about the kind of salvation he was providing was, was just way off. And that's a real question, I think. And I think it's why after showing us Jesus' parents' commitment to God's law, and after giving us Simeon's explanation of why Jesus was rejected, third, Luke introduces us to Anna, which sounds a lot like Hannah. <laughs> Verses 36 to 38, and there's a reason I said that. You can think about it at home. But there was a prophetess, Anna, or Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. So again, this is someone who speaks for God. She's not just any other older lady. She's actually a prophetess. And Luke makes clear she's devoted her entire life to God. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. So this is like a really godly widow in the temple. And interestingly, later, <laughs> Jesus is going to get upset with the religious leadership for the way they treated widows in the temple. You remember, right? Around the time when he talks about the temple being destroyed. But how does this really godly widow in the temple respond to Jesus and coming up at that very hour and it's like Luke is connecting this to Simeon's statement by saying that and the order is important because if he had told us what Anna said before what Simeon says 
we might think Simeon was correcting Anna. But by having what Anna is saying come after, it's like he's allowing her to have the last word instead. And coming up at that very hour, as Simeon is explaining the rejection of Jesus and all of this from Isaiah to Jesus' parents, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And that's an important word, redemption. It's linked back to what uh, Zacharias said Jesus was going to do, right? Luke 168. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he's visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. And what Old Testament book defines redemption? Exodus. So they're thinking of redemption in Exodus-like language. And actually, if you go to Luke 24, after Jesus died, what were the disciples sad about? You remember what the disciples were sad about after Jesus died, what they couldn't figure out? Jesus asked them, Luke 24, 21, why are you giving up? And they explained, the chief priests and the rulers delivered Jesus to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that he, it was he who was going to redeem Israel. And what was Jesus' response? Was his response to the disciples in Luke 24? I, you know what? I can understand why you're confused because of the crucifixion thing. No, he says, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. In other words, your interpretation of these events is wrong, and it's wrong because you don't understand Scripture the way Anna did. <laughs> the way Anna did. And that may be part of why Simeon's and what he says doesn't faze her. Godly Jews who understood the Scripture and Isaiah from the beginning should have understood that the crucifixion of Jesus was not something that meant God was finished with his plan for redeeming Jerusalem, but in fact was part of that plan. And honestly, we're just in Luke 2, but that's kind of the answer <laughs> the Gospel of Luke gives. The Luke's answer to the questions of the doubts and uncertainties that as believers we may have about Jesus. Anna, the disciples at the end, what Jesus says to them, that, that's the answer. But it's important because, I mean, I think we're, we're tempted so often to think primarily the problems with Jesus. Like, God, you know what? I, I don't see it. It just doesn't look like you're accomplishing a, as big a salvation as the Bible says you are. But the problem is not God. And the problem is not Jesus. God has spoken. The answers are there in Scripture. He has answered. He has explained. And he is going to do exactly what he said he's going to do through Jesus. Everything God said through Mary and Zechariah, through those Old Testament prophets, it's going to happen. The way that we respond to Jesus doesn't say anything about Jesus ultimately. He is salvation. But what it does say is something about what's in our hearts. What's in your heart? You want to know how do you respond to Jesus? God is providing a full and complete salvation through Jesus. Total salvation through Jesus. Do you believe it? If you do, how, how should you respond? Look at Simeon. Look at Anna. 
worship and, and witness. Let's pray. Father, I trust that you speak through your word. And as we understand what your word meant, I believe the spirit of God speaks to the people of God to show the glory of Jesus. And so I ask that this week, your spirit would take this message and do your amazing work in the hearts of those who are believers. Those who aren't believers here, Lord, call them to yourself. Please help them not to be like Zechariah who saw that, had that revelation and then just didn't believe. Uh, help, at least at the beginning, help them to be like Zechariah at the end. Uh, but Lord, we pray that we wouldn't reject your revelation. Uh, those who aren't believers, that they would hear you calling them and turn to Christ and find salvation. Those of us who are believers, oh God, please help us not to live half in, half out. Please help us in this world that's constantly telling us this story and telling us to doubt, doubt, doubt. Help us to grow in our certainty. Lord, give us that rock-solid conviction that, Jesus, you are God's plan of salvation. That rock-solid conviction that enables us to step up and, and to be filled with joy in a difficult world. Uh, that enables us to, that emboldens us and gives us a passion to go out and proclaim Jesus as complete salvation. Um, Lord, we know it's going to be hard. You told us that. Right now is the era of the cross, but we also know it's the era of the Spirit. We have the Spirit of God, and so we believe that you can use us, Lord. And so we just ask that you would make us a church, make us a church who believes and whose entire life is transformed through that belief, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.